Hi, everybody. My name's Andy. I'm a pastor at the Table Church in Victoria. And um, I'm really excited to be here. This is my first three lecture. <laughs> so I hope, it's, I hope it's a good one. You're expecting second, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I uh, are real jump into Revelation chapter one tonight. Um, and my goal is to follow John into the world that he sees. Uh, and to hopefully spark our imaginations uh, for how we might read our present and our past as well as anticipate tomorrow or the future and what's next. Um, just really quickly, I want to share a bit about my influences in Revelation. And two of my favorite books on Revelation is one called Reverse Thunder by Eugene Peterson, uh, The Revelation of John and the Praying Imagination. It's really, really great, really, really helpful. And then the other one is by Daryl Johnson, who was my professor of preaching at Regent College. And he wrote a book called Discipleship on the Edge, an expository journey through the book of Revelation, where he basically kind of takes his sermon series through Revelation and just puts it in book form. Really great, really helpful, really clear, um, really accessible stuff. So if you're looking for some follow-up, you you're inspired tonight to get back into the book of Revelation, um, that's, I would recommend those two books. <clears throat> I, uh, when Clark asked me to, to come and, and give a lecture, uh, I was very excited and I said yes immediately. And then we had the problem of well, what would I speak on? And that, was, that was, took a lot more time to figure out. And, um, and I chose Revelation because I find that I'm attracted to these, these liminal spaces, right? In this case, Revelation, early Genesis, kind of the, the ends of the Bible, so literally the, the, the boundaries there, but also kind of the trickier bits of Scripture, because both of those spaces, early Genesis, Revelation, they're, they're kind of trickier. They're, they're kind of weird in parts, right? And they're, they're, um, it's not how we normally write. It's not how we normally speak. It's not how we normally think. And so I'm fascinated by what's happening here, and I always kind of look at it like kind of like a puzzle, like what's going on? What, this made sense to somebody at some point, um, so, so how are we to get into that? I want to avoid two poles when we come to read Revelation, and one is to sort of explain it away, flatten it so it's not fantastic or strange at all, on the one hand. Or on the other hand, I want to avoid just sort of jumping off the deep end to where it can just mean anything and everything that we can come up with, kind of jumping into our own deep, esoteric interpretations of it. I want to keep, in other words, I want to keep Revelation weird and fantastic because I think it was meant to be a little bit weird and fantastic. I think it was meant to be a jolt to our senses when we read it or when we hear it. And a challenge, as I think we'll see in the first chapter, a challenge to our perception of reality and what's going on. But I also want to recognize that it's grounded and rooted in images and words that point us to something very real and very concrete, actually deep, more deeply real than maybe we anticipated. And it would have been images the original audience understood. Um, there are more allusions in the book of Revelation to the Old Testament than there are verses in the book of Revelation. 500 either quotations or allusions of the Old Testament, 404 verses. So, figure that one out. I'm going to just read it all the way through. And I encourage you to listen. Most people, when it was originally written, 
would have heard it rather than read it, okay? And it was written to be heard. So hear it however best you can. Relax, close your eyes if it helps. Read along if you want. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So I'm going to come back around and just kind of go through verse or two at a time, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowing down. And then I want to end with maybe just some reflections, some implications for us and for our time uh, and for our culture. So. Revelation, probably written in the first century by the Apostle John, who's imprisoned on the island of Patmos. Uh, 
for his testimony, for his subversive beliefs. He's relaying to the global church, and as we'll see a little bit later, seven is an important number. It's a symbolic number. So there are literally seven churches he's writing to, but seven gives the hint that there's something more going on here. Seven is the number of completion. So the fact that he's writing to seven churches gives the hint that this isn't just for these seven particular churches, but it's for all the churches, the complete church, and probably not just the church in the first century, but all of the church throughout time and space. So for us too. So he's relaying to the global church what he saw and heard. John's writing, as you can tell already, is visual, very visual, losing lots of symbol that evokes the imagination, stirs the imagination. The revelation is meant to be immediately applied, so he says, heed this, pay attention. So it can't simply be relegated, as some of us might be tempted to do, to an event that's going to happen in the distant future. He says the time is near. So, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Well, that word revelation, where we get the title from in the Greek, it's apocalypsos, or apocalypse. Right? And it doesn't mean the end of the world. It means revelation. It, the image is of a curtain being pulled back and something, or someone, in this case, being revealed, an unveiling. He made it known, this unveiling, by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. And that word prophecy, it connects and kind of overlaps with apocalypse or revelation. And the reference is to the whole of the book of Revelation. It's connected to what is being revealed. And if you go back to the Old Testament prophets, it's less about foretelling the future, although that can be part of it, sort of a subset of prophecy. Prophecy is more about forthtelling. It's more about telling what's really happening right now that might not be obvious to the naked eye. And so it overlaps with that theme a bit. Then he says the time is near, which for us might be a little bit distracting because you think, well, okay, now it is 7.35 on a Friday night in 2020, and he wrote this, right? You're doing the math. So how are we talking about soon? But the time here, we have to be careful because there's two Greek words to use for time. One of them is chronos. You know the other one? Kairos time, right. And the word used here for time is kairos time. It speaks, it's connected to this revelation of Jesus, and it speaks um, differently than chronos time. So... Chronos time is chronological time, or tick-tock time, as my friend Vanessa um, <laughs> likes to say. Chronos is tick-tock time. And kairos is opportunity time. It's fitting time. It's ripe time. It's that kind of season. Now is the time. It's a deeper sense of time. 
this is very challenging for us, I think, for us moderns who live in this part of the world to think in terms of Kairos times because of all of our clocks and all of our watches and all of our smartphones tick, tick, ticking away the moments that make up a dull day. Pink Floyd reference. <laughs> but it's clear that this book of Revelation can not only be thought of in terms of its application and importance in reference to the distant future. It's, if we get stuck in the it has to be Kronos time, then that's where we kind of get confused. And it, both, this is true both in terms of the first century and in terms of our time as well. So I think we need to take the Greek word choice by John here seriously. Kairos, not Kronos. It helps us take this book seriously as a book for our time as well. That this is something that's also happening right now. Some of the things that we read about in the book of Revelation. Just as it was a book for John's time and his audience's time. We'll come back to that theme later because it's going to keep coming up again. So verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So again, seven spirits might be a little bit confusing to us, but again, if we think about the importance of the symbols and the numbers, seven, it's a symbol of fullness, of completeness and perfection. So it may be just a way of saying the fullness of God's spirit, the fullness of the agent of God's mediating presence to us as the community of God's people, right? As the church. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. So here's the gospel assumption here in the background. We are free because of the work of Christ. Come back to that. He's made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So priests, mediators, go-betweens. This is the role of God's people in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. Priests, a mediator between God and others. So this is our vocation. This is our role. If, if we happen to belong to Jesus, if we consider ourselves Christian, then we're go-betweens between our neighbors and between one another on the one hand and God on the other. So we can bring um, the message of God to those around us and we can bring the concerns that we have for our neighbors the neighbors concerns and one another's concerns before God it's pretty neat behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him or maybe on account of him so it is to be amen so here's the thing coming with the clouds there's a direct reference here to Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man comes um, on the, riding on the clouds. Clouds throughout all the Old Testament and even into the New Testament are a symbol of God's presence. Right? So you can think back to um, you can think back to the Exodus, and they were led out by a pillar of fire by night. And then it was a cloud by day, the symbol of God's presence. Moses goes up to Sinai and it's just covered, shrouded in this cloud. You remember the tabernacle, once it was completed, um, 
and consecrated already, then God descended and his glory was there and it was filled up with the cloud so much so that they couldn't enter it. Same thing, um, Solomon's temple dedicated, glory descends, cloud, right? You go to the New Testament and we go to the Transfiguration Mountain, uh, Mountain of Transfiguration, where Jesus is transfigured before them in all his glory and it said there's a cloud there when they heard the voice of God. Probably think of um, Acts chapter 2 when Jesus ascends and then he's hidden by the cloud. Okay, so lots of overlap here of God's presence, of God's glory, and the cloud that can obscure him or can, can reveal him. Okay. And I think there's some potential overlap for us as we think about um, some of the confusion that we have culturally in our in our cultural moment in our age in our time in our space because history kind of feels like a cloud to us doesn't it the fog of history the fog of war how do you make sense of what's going on in the world it seems like the work in the rule of God in Christ is hidden by a cloud for us and I think that was true for John too. And he's pointing out the significance of this unveiling. And look, if you look, if you know how to look, if you know how to see, you can see Jesus coming, you can see him coming with the clouds. Pay attention to the tense. He is coming. This is in John's time right now. So John cannot be referring, at least here, to a physical and visible, to the physical eyes, Jesus coming on a cloud, unless we really think that he means for his hearers to stick their heads out the windows and look up, right? But instead, he's taking the symbols of clouds, which for him and for his audience would be an indicator of the divine presence with an emphasis on a coming judgment a good judgment, an overturning kind of just kind of judgment. And the one that's riding on those clouds, the truly human one, the divine, taking the divine throne and coming in that good kind of judgment. So John is sort of directing us to see his act of Jesus' act of judgment that is currently subverting the established powers of our time, of our age, of our place, whether they be political, social, or spiritual. If you remember back to Acts 2, when Jesus is taken from the disciples, hidden by the cloud, and you remember the angel, what the angels say when they're all kind of looking up with their, their slack jaw, mouth agape? The angel says what? They'll return in the same way. Yeah, why are you looking up? He's going to come back the same way you saw him go. And I wonder if John is pointing us to the very presence of Jesus, his rule and his authority, even in the midst of the appearance of his total absence. Because you can look around, you can be very tempted, be very tempted to look around in our world today and say, it doesn't look like Jesus reigns, right? Most of us can feel that. But John is saying, oh, he does. It doesn't look like it but I can see he does. 
think this gives new dimension to the angel's directive to look for Christ to return, to come back in the same way he left. You will see him in the midst of the chaos and turmoil, actually, if you know how to look, says John. You will see him in the midst of bringing perfect, his perfect judgment, which I think we will see his perfect judgment means grace married to truth with power. Grace married to truth with power. The rest of the book of Revelation is going to be an outline of the way Jesus rules history with grace, truth, and power. So it fits with this theme here. So whatever else the book of Revelation may be, I think it's a map for reading history through the eyes of faith. To see Jesus in the midst of the very thing that tends to obscure him for us. The fog of war, the static of our age. If you're like me, when you read this, you're sort of on the edge of your seat with John. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, great, yeah, I'm excited about this. How does this happen, John? How do I see like this? How can I have the veil pulled back and see this reality too? Okay, sit tight. I think we'll get there. So, so far, through the first six verses, I think we're seeing the purpose of the book is to identify with Jesus, who is coming at this very moment, both in the time, first century, when John was writing, and also right now, it's never not true that Jesus is coming with the clouds, with authority, easily obscured, unless it's pulled back. If we trust Jesus, if we consider ourselves a Christian, we testify with the true faithful witness, Jesus himself, and we will rise along with the firstborn of the dead, and we will reign with the ruler of the kings of earth into a new kingdom, a new age. It is also to recognize the dominion of Jesus' kingdom breaking into the current world order, the old age. Okay, I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit because we've got to get to the last bit. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and the Omega is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's like, don't worry. I have the first and last words on everything. I am a trustworthy ruler. Then John switches to address the churches he's writing to. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom, and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So that word tribulation, we don't use it a lot in our everyday. How, how's your day? Oh, lots of tribulation. Lots of tribulation actually at work. And then with the kids later, more tribulation. I'm going st- to bring it back. I feel like it's a good word. Um, the Greek word, which is not important to say, but it's just fun to say. Uh, is Thlipsis. Can you say that with me? Thlipsis? Yes. Yeah. No other reason to tell you that other than it's one of the more fun Greek words to say. Thlipsis. Um, uh, I got so excited last one. Yeah, Thlipsis. Struggle. That's the word we use. The struggle is real. That's what John is saying. The struggle is real. The struggle. Uh, the, um, I am a fellow partaker in the struggle. I think we can identify with that. Crushing pressure. Yeah? Space, he's talking about the space where kingdoms collide. Because that's what's happening. Fellow particular in the struggle, this crushing pressure, and the kingdom. The domain of one's rule, in this case, the domain of Jesus' rule. 
John, along with us, if we're if we're if we're Christian, if we're trusting Jesus, occupies two spaces at once, belonging to one kingdom while experiencing the conflict of that kingdom colliding with the other one that we also have a foot in or that we're living in the reality of, and the result is flipsis. And he's on Patmos. It's also fun to say. The Roman government maintained rock quarries here where criminals and troublemakers were sent as a result of John living in two spaces. He had to go to Patmos because of the implications of his faithfulness to an alien kingdom that was at odds with the kingdom that he found himself in. Odds at Ro with Rome and the empire. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Lord's Day just means Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection and Christian worship. So he's probably praying, he's probably worshiping. And he hears a voice like the sound of a trumpet. Voices don't sound like the sound of a trumpet. But this one did. <clears throat> sound of a trumpet is specific. It meant something in John's day and age. It meant something in, um, in his time. It meant something in the Old Testament. It's a sound of warning. It's a call to attention. It's a call to action, maybe a call to war. We're about to see John's first vision. Um, but I'm going to skip that part. Save time. Let's jump to 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the sun, like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching down to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Son of Man, again, we're referencing Daniel 7. It's a very important book for John in, Revel in his book on Revelation, his letter to the churches. It just means truly human one. And Jesus refers to himself that way in the Gospels, if you remember. The robe reaching to the feet and the golden sash across the chest, these are garments of the high priest. So Jesus is appearing to John in his role as high priest, the high mediator between God and between humans, between us. The sash across the chest symbolizes one's work is finished. When you're working, you wear the sash around your waist. Your belt, you're out to work. So fascinating. Jesus is finished with his work. You realize there's like 21 more chapters of Revelation and a lot of things happen. And in the very first chapter, Jesus is already finished. He's already done. Does that tell you something? These details that John is sharing with us are very important. They're not just like, oh, I'm just going to fill out the picture for you, just kind of give you a sense of what it was like. No, he's telling us on purpose. He's communicating something. The work of Jesus is done. It was done back, back in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was done. It was finished, right? And so when we get to Revelation, all the things going to transpire, it's just the working out. It's the denouement of the story, right? It's, the it's, it's already finished. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. White wool, like snow, a similar description to the Ancient of Days, again, in Daniel 7, but probably also an allusion to Isaiah chapter 1. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Pointing to Jesus' grace and forgiveness. Again, to his finished work. 
The flame of fire, his eyes like a flame of fire, penetrating, purifying, cleansing. Fire is a symbol of these things. His gaze pierces to us. He sees through into the hearts of men and women. He doesn't just see it, but he purifies, he cleanses. You might be reminded of Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah recognizes, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And remember the seraphim take the tongs with the, the burning coal, and it pur- touches his lips and it purges him, and it cleanses him. This is the image of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters. So burnished bronze, a strong and reinforced metal. You might remember it from Daniel chapter 2. And it's juxtaposed in that chapter over against the weakness of the foundation of the earthly kingdoms. So speaking to the strength and the power of Jesus in his kingdom that will not compare to the kingdoms that surround us that seem so eternal to us, seem so unbreakable, the superpowers of our age. The sound of many waters is his voice, a deafening sound drowning out all the others. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So the seven stars, he'll tell us later, these are the seven angels, but these are significant. Seven stars would have been significant in the, in the Roman, Greco-Roman area of first century because the seven stars were the seven planets of the Greco-Roman world. They knew seven planets that moved throughout the skies. They were identified with fate and with the gods. They had astrological importance determining people's future and fortune. You want to know what the future held, you looked to the stars and you knew what was coming. And John is saying, I looked and he held the fates in his hands. He was in control. He's in charge. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one, and I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John relates what he experiences while in exile on Patmos. His vision of Jesus fuels the church's struggle to deny the claims of empire and to stand firm throughout its oppression. Everything in the vision speaks significance not only to the church of John's day, but also to ours, because I think it's for the whole church. Two opposing kingdoms, two opposing worlds are colliding in the middle. There is much flipsis. There is much struggle, crushing pressure. The background assumption of this passage is that the church is located in the epicenter of this collision and experiences the violence most acutely. Jesus' voice here is like a trumpet, a warning, a call to attention and action. And the sound of many waters, if we're able to hear it, overwhelms and drowns out the other voices. 
the other calls to our attention and our allegiance. Jesus here is also in the midst of his churches. Did you notice that? Right in the middle of them. He speaks in their midst. He heals in their midst. He forgives in their midst. He transforms and purifies in the midst of the churches. In Revelation, the church is the nexus, the meeting space of, of where God's kingdom and our world intersect. So it's also the focal point of this struggle and crushing pressure where the conflict is heaviest. Have you ever thought of worship as a politically and spiritually subversive act? John did. And many in our time in different parts of the world are much more keenly aware of this. I want to just shift gears right now. And I just, I had three reflections or maybe cultural implications of this that I thought that really kind of stuck with me. You might, as, as you kind of, we've kind of been sticking this, you might have your imagination stirred. You might be kind of going to your own places. I'd, be, I'd love to hear in a little bit. The first one is living in Kairos time. You hear this language, he is ruler, he is lord of the present, he is lord of the past, and he is lord of the future. We need to learn to read Revelation in Kairos time, to look with John and see, see that the time of God's powerful kingdom-breaking-in season is now. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Instead of having a mindset that God's deliverance and regime-changing work is relegated to the very end of chronological history, which is not the thrust of the whole book, we must learn to see Jesus, the Lord of history, present and active right now. And I think Revelation, I think John in Revelation teaches us how to do that. If we can spend some time there. So long as we're stuck in the Kronos time, just the Kronos time, I'm not anti-Kronos, okay? I know I get that. I get that rap a lot. I'm not anti-Kronos. But if we're just stuck there, and that's the only way we conceive of it, and that's the only way we read scripture, it's the only way we experience time, then we're never going to see Jesus like John sees him here. We're not going to see Jesus active and present among the chaos and confusion of our age. But if we learn to read the scriptures as they were intended... We can allow the fog of war to be cleared enough to see Jesus coming in power, to see him actually present and active in our midst. This way of reading sees Revelation as very relevant right now, just as it was in the first century. Now, in case you're getting uncomfortable, this does not mean that I don't think that the Bible teaches that there's going to be an end you get to Revelation 21 and 22, it's very clear that there's something in its fullness that is not here yet. There is a consummation that has happened that we are definitely directed to. I'm not, not denying all that stuff, but I think we are maybe have oversounded that note um, in the North American church um, and as of late. So... Maybe one way of illustrating or thinking of Kairos time is to think of it as circular. You ever notice in your own life that things kind of come back around? It can kind of be a little bit discouraging. Like, oh, I thought that I grew. I thought that I matured. I thought that I 
dealt with this and now I feel like I'm dealing with it again. But it seems like that's how God kind of works in our lives. He brings us back around. And it's not so much a circle that we're trapped in as a spiral, right? That we kind of move and we come back again and we are facing that same issue but at a deeper level. That's an individual way of looking at it, but you could kind of extend that out to history as well. You know, history sometimes repeats itself. Maybe it's more like a spiral, right? And learning the seasons and learning the Kairos time, even as the spiral moves us forward. Things and themes tend to come back around. Kairos time, living in Kairos time. The second thing that stuck with me in, as I was kind of reflecting on this was learning to see with the prophetic imagination for our time and space. How we let the word of God shape what we see. There's this great example later on, I think it's chapter four or five, when, when um, John is in the throne room, crazy stuff's going on, and there's this, this crisis moment because the scrolls have to be read or have to be unlocked, have to be unsealed, and no one can do it. No one, no one is worthy enough, no one's strong enough, it's not gonna happen, people are starting to cry about it. And it's important because this has to do with the meaning of all history and the consummation of all things. And then all of a sudden he hears the roar of a lion and here's one who is strong. Here's one who can do it. Here's one who's conquered and is powerful enough. And so he turns to look and see the lion and what does he see? He sees a lamb as though slain. Like the antithesis. He looks and sees abject failure. He looks and sees the cross, which must look like complete and utter nonsense right? And yet, when we read through the Gospels, we read through the, the Apostles um, teaching us and, and relaying the story to us, we realize that this thing that looked like total and other failure is actually the crowning moment. The, the, the moment that Christ is enthroned, tied to his, his resurrection and ascension, of course, that ties it all together. And so, what we see, we can't always trust because it looks like it's going to be weak. It's not going to work. God's not at work here. Jesus isn't around. What are we going to do? I'm panicking. And if we learn to listen to Scripture, if we learn to listen to God's words, it shapes how we understand and how we see Jesus in his presence. This is a quote from Paul Spilsbury. I think he nails it. Revelation wants us to take its world to be even more real than the one we commonly refer to as the real world. Revelation wants us to take its world to be even more real than the one we commonly refer to as the real world. In fact, Revelation is out to undermine our confidence in the evidence of our own eyes. That's great. You see that John turns to see the voice. Oh yeah, whiteboard. Here we go. Here's our big whiteboard moment. Okay. So I'm just going to parse out a little bit John's vision. We already talked about it. We talked about some of the details. But he uses uh, what's common, a literary, common literary device called a chiasm. Uh, it's common in Hebrew. It's common in Greek. And it's really helpful for remembering. So if you remember, this is largely an oral culture. Very few people are literate. If you know the revelation, it's probably because you heard it. If you're in the first century 
and chiasm aids memory, so it makes it easy to remember when you went to the gathering of the saints on the Sunday and they read from the book of Revelation. Like, okay, I can remember it because of the chiasm. Okay, so the chiasm is like this. It's a... Um, I didn't write down what it is, so I'll just tell you. It's a... Uh, thing. I can't talk and write it. So, <laughs> um, so you have, in this case, you'll have seven elements, and the first and the last are going to pair. The second and the second to last are going to pair. So you have A, A prime, B, B prime, C, C prime. And the most important thing, the crown jewel, is the fourth thing, the middle thing. That's the important thing that you're supposed to remember, and it's embedded in this other stuff, and it all flows together. So, the first thing we have in the vision is the head and hair. This isn't <laughs> head and hair. And it was white, right? You get it. White like snow, like wool. The last thing he saw, face like the sun. <laughs> Can I write for you? Yes. That'd be better. That's a good idea. Thank you. Face like the sun. And then um, uh, let's go to B up here is eyes like a flame of fire. Okay. And B prime. You can say like a flame of fire. B prime is mouth with two-edged sword. Just say just mouth sword is fine. We don't want to be precise. No tester yet. Okay. C is going to be feet like bronze. Feet of bronze. What's that? It's French. And then C prime is going to be right hand, uh, a hand holding stars. And seven stars. And then the middle, what's left? The voice, like the rushing, the sound of rushing waters, sound of many waters. So the voice, the trumpet, many waters. So you can see the relationship, A and A prime, head and hair, face, okay, you can see the relationship, eyes and mouth, okay, boom, boom, and you can see the relationship between the C's, feet like bronze, hand, seven stars, and then it sets up the central piece being the voice, sound of many waters, okay, and these paired together because the first and last thing that we see in the vision of Jesus speak to his grace. They speak to his forgiveness. They speak to his blessing. I don't think that's an accident. The white like snow, the face like the sun, the warmth, the blessing, the light, the stuff that gives us life. Hmm? 
significant that that is the first and last thing, the welcoming in, the blessing. The second thing speaks to what? Is truth. The purifying truth. That is not just, they're there, it's okay. Also, we got to deal with truth. We got to deal with justice matters to God. Yeah? Um, so the flame of fire that penetrates, that sees through, that purifies, that transforms the mouth of the two-edged sword that speaks also right to our hearts, right to our souls, transforms us. And then we got feet of bronze and the hands of seven stars which speak to his power and authority. Yeah. Okay? So here we have it. This is this is the good ruler. This is the ruler beyond reproach. This is the unimpeachable ruler of grace married to truth that has power to actually achieve goodness and mercy and justice. And everything centers on, to understand this, to experience it in its fullness, centers on hearing the voice of Jesus in our lives. This is essential and central. I like this stuff. This stuff helps me. All point to the central aspect of the vision. Jesus' voice drowns out the lies of the empire. Jesus' voice drowns out the lies of our age. There's no shortage of stories and spins and things that are wrong. What are the claims of empire that we see the church today must stand against? And also careful about seeing church as an optional add-on for the Christian. It seems pretty central and important here. If you want to find Jesus, you're going to find him in the midst of the churches, at least in Revelation 1. I didn't say that. John said that. Okay? <laughs> I understand it can get complicated. I get it. But we got to deal with that. Finally, my last thought. Not just learning Kairos time, not just seeing with prophetic imagination, as John does and teaches us, but engaging the world through that prophetic imagination. Um, Vanessa and I were talking about millennials yesterday, and I am on the very back end of the Gen X. So I think like three years after I was born, Surgeon General of the United States said, it's cut off. No more Gen Xers. We're doing millennials. At least that's how I picture it working. I don't know how it really works. So I'm on the very back end, and so I, 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 can, I can sympathize a lot with what I'm about to say. Um, but it seems like a lot of, not just millennials, a lot of us, but maybe especially being focused on that generation, there's a lot of decision fatigue. There's a lot of paralysis. There's too much sadness. There's too many problems. How are we going to fix them? There's too much information to process. I feel that all the time. There's too much stuff to know about and have to have an opinion about and have figured out. That is really hard. I understand much of this. I definitely see it in those of my generation and also that next generation that I walk with and that I care for and I've cared for. This is a crushing burden of reality. This is a crushing 
Flipsis. Flipsis. I said it wrong. Flipsis. And I think Revelation is an invitation to see Jesus as a live option for handing that fullness of that burden over. To allow his voice to drown out some of those other voices or all of those other voices. And to recognize he's the only one with the grace and the power and the wisdom to handle all that stuff. Does not mean just giving up or giving in. On the contrary, following Jesus is a call to stand against the powers of this age with faithfulness. It's how John ended up on Patmos after all. But it is a giving over and a following and a trusting. It's an invitation to be immersed in the word of God. So much so that we begin to see how we begin to see is shaped by that word, by that imagination. We know the gift of unveiling came for John when he was, as he says, in the spirit on the Lord's day. I think all he means is he was paying attention to the presence of God in his midst. He was in worship. The unveiling came when he heard a voice, the voice of Jesus. John was immersed and shaped by the word of God. We know that by how many illusions he had, more than verses he has of the Old Testament. He's immersed in the words of Jesus for three years, following him while Jesus taught and lived. Consider John's imagination shaped by the words of Scripture. This is from Daryl Johnson, Discipleship on the Edge. As we make our way through the last book of the Bible, we will discover that John paints his pictures in the language of the Old Testament. That's because long before he has the experience conveyed in Revelation, his imagination was already captured by Old Testament imagery. John sees what he sees and hears what he hears through his Old Testament-informed imagination. There are more than 500 quotations and or allusions from and or allusions to the Old Testament in his work. The fact alone tells me that if I want to read Revelation accurately, I too need to be steeped in the whole biblical story. And I think we could extend out. If I want to read my world accurately, I need to be steeped in the whole biblical story. I need to learn how to see again. When we immerse ourselves in God's word, we're putting ourselves in the presence of the one who can drown out the static of our age with his own voice trustworthy, full of grace, truth, and power. So again, it's not about sticking our heads in the sand and not worrying about stuff. Clearly John's not doing this. He's prioritizing the voice of Jesus to know how to frame and understand the chaos around us. Um, I think I'm going to end there. My last thought was just half-baked anyway, so um, I think I'll leave it there, and I'm interested in your thoughts, such as they are. Wait, what was that called again, this little diagram? This is a chiasm. Chiasm. A lot of fun words to say tonight. Oops. No, I will start. Uh, first, uh, thank you, Andy, for kind of laying out a book that gives some people lots of problems mm -hmm. and confusion and hides 
Uh, I know a lot of Christians don't read Revelation. They avoid it. Uh, it, gives, it, it, it makes them worry or it, it makes them think of Kirk Cameron. And so they try to think, you know, it's best for me just to avoid it. And by doing so, they actually miss a lot of what God has to offer to his people, um, particularly those who are feeling the crushing weight of the time, mm -hmm. which I think is something that every age experiences, first century, 21st century, 8th century, 14th century, right. any century you pick. Um, and I think it's a good word for you know, people who feel that this is an age of anxiety. You know, people feel that they're helpless in the throes of power and, and don't know if there is a, if they have a voice um, or, or if truth will win out. Mm -hmm. It just, it almost seems to be playing by, by the book that, uh, that power or might is right. And so I think that this, this book is really helpful to that. So mm -hmm. thank you for that. Yeah, um, yeah and... This is part of my question. I'm going to ramble into it, which sometimes I encourage people to do because it seems to, mm -hmm. to be closer to the truth if it's not well-defined um, in asking the question. <clears throat> so, I mean, there was a few times that you mentioned, you know, empire, powers that be, and, uh, and things like that, uh, which would almost suggest that, you know, you're speaking to, a, to an audience that... that um, fills the struggle against, let's say, the powers that be in the U.S., you know, mm -hmm. and wondering, okay, will this tyranny end, this totalitarianism or whatever, but uh, then you have others who um, <clears throat> maybe outside of that would say, well, you know, Jesus is not on the side of the, the lefties, it's on the righties, you know, and they think that the oppressor that they face mm -hmm. is a totalitarianism from the left. So it seems to me very tempting to take this Jesus and to apply it to whatever oppression we might we might suggest or experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, I, I'm I'm asking you, you. You you gave us a little tidbit at the end. You know, we need to be steeped in the whole biblical story. But I wanted to kind of magnify that a little bit. So, mm -hmm. how can we? remain faithful to this voice rather than to the Jesus that we've created. Mm -hmm. Yes. Indeed, how can we? Mm -hmm. well, my, my first impulse is to say how much more important it is then to, to be steeped in the whole story um, so that we are more shaped by that than by CNN or of post or the, the for me that just the reflections on and this is the half baked idea to share is is just how, what power media has whether it's the Twitter sphere whether it's my news feed and where those are coming from how much they're shaping the story like it's yeah. to me almost sometimes it feels like the empire is more than as much or more the media than it is the whether the, the whatever regime in in the states or, or wherever and just trying to like that's where a lot of the I, if I'm think just as me personally people might have different there are different experiences that's where the static feels like it's coming from is is trying to parse out truth and reality from 
from all the headlines and the articles and, and oh, so and when you say static, you mean like white noise, like the bombardment of noise? Is that what you mean, or what do you mean by static? Sorry. I I um I guess I mean yeah the all the the um ways maybe we're trained to think or the opinion opinions we we need to have whether that's falling in I, I find some aspects of being having to be politically correct oppressive mm -hmm. for example um or or um you know whether it's who i'm listening to or or what i'm reading um kind of getting in line with how you're supposed to be thinking and then being careful about what I'm saying, you know what I mean? Because um, there's there's being sensitive and thoughtful about people in the room, and that we have different opinions come from different places. And then there's just like the thought police or the the, the word police um, idea. But I, I'm kind of rambling now. But um, I guess by static, I'm not sure. I think I think um, I'm overwhelmed. I get overwhelmed by by one all the the problems to all the opinions I should have on it, especially if I'm in a leadership position, mm -hmm. in a spiritual leadership position, um, and then just trying to keep up with everything. I mean, it must be difficult to, I mean, you are a pastor over, uh, you know, several people that would align themselves, I would imagine, diversely, yeah. politically. Yeah. And, uh, and so I guess, how do you present Jesus so that they might come around this mm -hmm. rather than around party lines or mm -hmm. or um, around their fears of the other uh, carefully and um, and I and we are Josh and I are both aware of that when we're communicating that we're not um, we're not sort of giving in to to um, yeah I guess to a to a, just what you said, aligning Jesus with with uh, with a, a left or a right um, mm -hmm. sort of, and, and almost always, that is easy to do in the sense that issues are always way more nuanced than almost always way more nuanced than the media is 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 allowing for, or our conversations and our mm -hmm. rules around conversations is allowing for, and so it's easy in that sense to show people. Um, hey, it's a little bit. I think it's a little bit more complicated, actually, than you think. And can you know the this part is good. You lead and end with a lot of grace in those conversations and or in a preaching moment. Um, so, so you try to create space of understanding and listening, and so you can kind of use some of the cultural um, currency of. Hey, a safe place for me to share with you, you know, that kind of stuff and, and be a good listener. Um, but yeah, you can kind of sneak a little jab in there of, oh, I'm not, I'm not maybe quite as sure of that as you or a lot of our culture is, you know, and you just kind of work those things in through conversation, which I'm, I'm sure happens a lot here at Liberty as well. I'm trying to create that space of, of commonality and, 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 while being okay with disagreeing. I think that's hard in our culture is being okay with conversations where you're not agreeing. That get that people get uncomfortable really quick. Like it's not okay to have a different opinion. You, you've experienced that here, right? So we have conversations every other Tuesday night downtown and it's filled with mostly people 
over 45, 50 who are lonely and looking for conversation. And the whole tagline is, oh, I can't remember it now, substantial conversations because they can't find it anywhere else. They can't find a space to just have a conversation where it's okay to disagree anymore. And here, Josh has created a safe space every other Tuesday night downtown, and people love to come. It's like, oh, we disagree? Great. Awesome. Let's, let's hash it out over the table and have a good time over coffee and, all right, see you in two weeks. That sort of thing. It's, it's rare. It's hard. And I think that's, that's what makes some of this actually harder than, than it needs to be in our culture. Yeah, especially with the media, like it's always about bullying one side mm -hmm. and bullying the other yeah. side. It's like, and then the population is afraid and they're afraid to be bullied, so they'll just go behind without even thinking. Like you said, I think it's way more nuances. Like they're just attacking each other for just to gain the end of power. But, yeah. but I just want to say something. There's one thing I, I cannot, I'm not going to bullshit you. <laughs> I cannot make sense of everything you said here tonight. Like I mm -hmm. usually don't, but I pick up a little bit. Mm -hmm. But it's one thing that you said that I really like. And it made me feel good is rather see life as a circle, more mm -hmm. as a spiral mm -hmm. that we come then. I just like I felt more free when you mm -hmm. mentioned it. I was like, well, I never heard it that way before. Well, mm -hmm. I'm keep my journey. I made me feel like if I'm keep growing and I'm keep going yeah. up, but then it's more deep. And mm -hmm. I just want to say thank you for that mm -hmm. analogy mm -hmm. because it's really made me feel good. Yeah, and that's I'm like, okay. That's, that's mean I keep yeah. growing because I do that. I can, I thought man, I thought I was done with yeah. that. I thought, you know, it's like it, one thing that I surprised myself to say is that, oh, no, I'm too old for that. <laughs> Why? Why again? You know, it's like, uh, it's like losing a job and then you have to reapply for jobs again. Like, right. why? I thought I was too old for that. I got, you know, go through mm -hmm. that again anyway. So, but in reality, I got more experience mm -hmm. and I know more what to say. I'm more prepared. Yeah, I get maybe yeah. more annoying, but yeah. So, yeah. I just want to say thank you for that. What? Did I say something for I just have a question for yeah, clarification on what you were saying at the end yeah. um, about John carefully crafting this kind of imaginary thing. So were you saying that it was a crafty, creative thing? Or did, like, are you discounting, are you saying it wasn't a true vision and unveiling spiritual experience? That it was a creative flow? Or yeah, my, my bias is I, th I think John saw what he saw and he's relating it to the churches and, and to us. Um, I think what I meant by that is I, I think he's intentional, whether led, I, I believe, probably led by God's Spirit. Is my, my, I have a high view of Scripture. Um, but that this is intentional. And so my, my personal view of, of Scripture and inspiration is that the Spirit of God cooperates with the human author. So I think that he and the Spirit together were intentional about this order and wanting to begin and end on grace and have the voice in the middle to, to speak something specific about, about what John saw. But that he actually did see it. He wasn't just having a creative... That's my sense of things, of, of, of reading the text. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to clarify. Yeah. So is this format all throughout? The Revolution? chiasm? Yeah, chiasm. I think there is, actually. I think there, because you, you can go through books and you have, like, this is kind of a small one, just a couple of verses long, but you have, you have, uh, you can read commentaries and people will say, oh, it looks like a chiasm is 
chapter one is A and chapter two and three is B. And so um, if you look, it might be Johnson. I'm not sure if he goes into that much detail, but uh, you can actually look at whole kind of almost like a table of contents, like how they kind of lay out their material to, to maybe in part to aid memory, but also to give cues of to kind of the most important is pay attention to this because it's the center of the whole thing, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah but if you ask me exactly Mark what it is. Uses it, Mark uses it throughout yeah. his gospel, all yeah. throughout. Um, you'll see it in the Old Testament. Uh, John uses it all throughout. Um, and he and some people just call it the sandwich technique. <laughs> the meat is in the middle. Yeah. And, uh, and so John likes to use uh, chiasm, but he likes to use it with cycles, like the spiral mm-hmm. that you're mm-hmm. talking about. And so in Revelation or in his gospel account, it tends to have cycles with chiasm. Mm-hmm. And so it's very complicated in how the ancient writer wrote and mm-hmm. thought. But, um, but yeah, it's throughout the whole Bible. So this is kind of like a grace sandwich. Right? It's a grace sandwich. sandwich. A voice sandwich. No, but it tastes like a voice sandwich. <laughs> voice with grace bread. <laughs> I have a question just regarding like knowledge, information, and the way to respond on events and... Uh, like information in general like you said that this is basically like if you're steeped in the Bible Mm. and in the gospel the way I heard it was that like you can respond adequately responsibly and intelligently to events that are happening now Mm. Um, what like I'm not asking for a specific ratio but (laughs) like I find myself more and more just feeling as you feel like overwhelmed by the amount of sources and the amount of events and every day they come at you again and Mm -hmm. you just don't have the time um, so like to, for yourself personally and for people that you've talked to that seem to have not a handle, but experience, more experience than I have, mm-hmm. um, like what amount of time do you devote to the Bible as opposed to you devote to sources? Because you have to keep yeah. up with life, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that's kind of my question. That's a really good question. I have a tremendously unfair advantage in that it's my job <laughs> to do this kind of stuff, right? So if you're like a nine to five or working, if you're teaching kids, right? Yes. You're probably you're not teaching them this. No. So, um, so that's that's a tricky question. What's that? We talked about periods today. Okay. <laughs> okay. I was like semicolon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a I don't know how to answer the question because, because um, I can't separate it from, from the work that I get to do as a pastor at the table. So I'm spending like, any, depending on uh, the week, I'm spending anywhere from, you know, five to 20 hours, depending on the week, just steeped in these things for work, never mind trying to keep up like maybe a lot of others in this room, maybe some sort of what we call a devotional life or a prayer life, kind of on the margins of it or, or finding space for all that sort of stuff. Um, but I, but it is really difficult because we are um, just that, just that switch over the last couple of decades of just how much information there is now and how it's everywhere and constant and just trying to feel like just the baseline of keeping up anymore it takes takes so much energy and effort and time mm-hmm. right so it seems like a real push against the stream like i got to you, you got to get exiled to patmos 
almost, <laughs> right? To be able to to spend time, um, to to even compete with the amount of hours, depending on our habits that we're on on Netflix or on Instagram or Twitter or just ex you know taking in. I'm not anti any of those things. I'm just saying that there's you know there's there's just constant competition in terms of what what we're reading and what we're seeing and what we're hearing and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. I don't have an answer. I just know it's hard. Can I have an idea Please about do. it? Mm. I love the question about ratio because I resonate with that so much. Like, because um, it feel in the moment it feels potentially like a selfish use of time for me to pray or read the Bible mm -hmm. compared to how much stuff I've been avoiding that I need to respond to as a responsible adult. Mm -hmm. Like apply, today I applied for supplementary benefits. Ooh. And um, it's, ha it's been on my to-do list, you know, for like two months and I just keep transferring it. So sometimes praying and reading the Bible sounds nicer to me than that. And so I have this, this tension like, um, I have all these people I need to respond to, and then I have stuff that's not important to do, but that I want to do because I'm like real in the culture, you know. And so, a way that helped me just start to frame a ratio for what's a reasonable amount of time mm. to spend with God mm. on a daily basis was taking a tithe of my um, time awake. So my son went to kindergarten last year, so I thought, okay, 10% of the time he's at kindergarten. So that's the time I have without a kid, but I do have jobs. But at least the time without the kid is 350 minutes. So 10% of that, like a tithe of that, mm. is 35 minutes. Um, and then if I take the, the hours that I'm awake in the day, it was an hour and 30 minutes is a tenth of my minutes awake in an average day. So thinking of it like that, like 10% of my waking day is an hour and a half. That sounds reasonable to me to spend on reading the Bible and praying. Mm -hmm. Even though if someone said they spent an hour and a half a day, I'd be like, whoa, that sounds like way too much. <laughs> like how are you living your life, you know? Mm -hmm. But when I think of it as the first fruits of my day, the way that you think about your tithe as like the first fruits of what you receive, it kind of put it in perspective to me in a way that gave me freedom to say, to basically tell myself in like a little TikTok clock devil on my shoulder <laughs> that this is a this yeah. is an okay 35 minutes mm. is a totally valid reasonable responsible mm -hmm. use of time so that's my my 35 minutes is like my minimum mm. and then it up to an hour and a half and then you know that little voice is like oh you know you're this is a bad choice this is you're not even mm. feeling anything it's not even worth it and I, and I tell myself that is one-tenth of my entire waking day. I think you can shut up now. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. I, I think I and others could probably identify with what it feels like luxury when I have other priorities. Mm -hmm. But again, kind of switching it around back to St. John's imagination of this is what could be, on the one hand, what could be more of a priority of learning, of learning how to orient your life around this this person who is who is the best ruler right the best leader the best king and and learning to see 
learning to see well and be a non-anxious presence in your culture that is, um, yeah, that is that is being transformed and, and seeing transformation. It seems important. It seems yes, good. It, it seems like some of it should be enjoyable, even even as it's necessary. Those things are not mutually exclusive. Necessary, and enjoyable, are okay together. It's nice when that happens, actually. Right? It happens. Um, something I really appreciate is in the Western Church. I've noticed this kind of like a book that just came out from a popular guy. It's called To Hell with the Hustle and other titles like Chasing Slow and this kind of new culture that's coming in specifically around the Western church mm. about slowing down and kind of moving away from high productivity and looking at just being slower. But in the text, it feels like something's missing. Like you, you know the person's a Christian who's writing about it, but it still feels very much because you need to make that choice and like you're in control mm. um, and it doesn't quite feel Christ-centered in, in my feelings when I'm, when I'm hearing these, mm. these podcasts about why you need to slow down and um, just kind of this new culture that's arising. But I feel like if you take the time to think about the time being ripe and how you know Jesus already has his, what belt, what, what was that belt called? The sash. Oh, his sash? Yeah. That's way it's less exciting sash. than I thought it was. <laughs> his sash was already up. Like, he's mm-hmm. already done the work. And not just in the sense that he died on the cross. Like, yes, that is very good. But um, it's kind of just that canned answer that mm-hmm. doesn't sink in. Mm-hmm. But seeing it from this perspective, or hearing it, and realizing that that's truly why we slow down is because it it's not about us. It never was about us. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, someone else has done the work for us and you know I've heard all these things before but it was just nice hearing it from a, a more like aggressive perspective in Revelation aggressive yeah, yeah. <laughs> more abstract and yeah, he has a very aggressive teaching style yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty much a pouch that's what a sash is it's a pouch a pouch yeah. I was wondering if there's if the Bible have uh, an end date, like, was it like, uh, or is there stuff in the Bible that are describing what's happening today? And if yes, what it is? Or. Uh, um, yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, I think, I think it addresses things that are so long as there's this age in conflict with, as kind of we've framed it here, I think, and, and Clark alluded to this earlier, like these things keep like historically I think they keep coming around yeah they might have different names and faces and look differently but um, my sense is as we read through the New Testament man a lot of things are feel directly applicable right out of the New Testament in the first century some of them need a little bit like okay it's not the exact same situation but there is overlap in these things so I think in that sense very much so I mean even looking back to the old story in the Exodus Right. This is this is retaken up in the New Testament. That Exodus language of what to understand what Jesus is doing in the midst of his ministry and his teaching, his life and death and resurrection. And I think that's still a way we can frame our understanding of our time and our moment and our personal lives as well. Is is through through these through these teachings. So I think in that way, I, I would say yeah, for sure. Um, this is kind of about 
revelation in general, I guess, but um, I really appreciated you um, helping us to see how it can apply to our lives today. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also wonder, you know, because even Jesus talked about, like, these are the things that will happen when the end is near and all yeah. of these things, and, and then saying that, but nobody knows when this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I often wonder, like, why did he talk about it then? like what what do we do with that now and what do we do um, with the things that point to the end times because Christians will get so we were just talking the other day about all the different views people have of like the tribulation yeah. and the rapture and all yeah. this stuff and and um, and it's not like it's not that appealing to me to get really obsessed with it but it's mm-hmm. obviously a really big deal for some people and causes and you know all these people are waiting you know yeah. waiting to be taken to heaven and um, so what is like the right relationship I guess for us to um, to how we sort of keep stay vigilant, you know, keep yeah. the, o- or the oil burning in the lamps or whatever. Yeah. I don't know, but I think that um, I think that that's applicable in the sense of Cairo's time, as we've been talking about spiraling, because because if Jesus is coming right now, just like he was coming on the clouds in the first century, then it means that every moment has has um, the significance of be, we're we're always in some sort of season, and Jesus is always present to his churches in 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 this collision of kingdoms. Um, so, I think there always has to be a sense in which we're experiencing, or as part of the culture and world we're in, we're experiencing some form of the good kind of judgment. I want to be careful with that word because we when you hear judgment, we go to the fire and brimstone stuff. But it's all it's it's the it's the power married to truth and grace. It's the it's the the good stuff. Like it's important. Um, but that's always I think I think John's point is that's happening right now in the world, and the, the our call to be vigilant isn't just for some chronos end time any moment now. The world's gonna end. I gotta watch for it. I don't know I don't know how to do that very well. But I but if it's connected to this idea of any uh, any kind of uh, I think a lot of like when you think back to the gospels and Jesus saying no one knows the day or hour I think a lot of that stuff he's actually referring to the destruction of the temple in AD 70 because it's contextually it's tied to him overturning the tables cursing the the fig tree tying it to the temple saying your days are numbered not one stone will be remain upon each other when the disciples are all oh, look at this building um, and then it's that very chapter he's saying no one knows the day or hour beware of this and this and this and all this cryptic apocalyptic language is happening but I think a lot of that is actually in reference to a historical point that has already happened that speaks to when I come in judgment on the temple you're going to know it you're going to see me and you're going you're gonna to understand I'm a prophet vindicated essentially that doesn't take away I think we're still pointing to an end, all end all consummation that's clear in the New Testament but a lot of it is, I think, still the Cairo spiral time. Be vigilant. Know the season. Know the time. Know, be aware of what Jesus is doing in and among us um, so we don't get caught off guard, essentially. That's about the best I got. I'm, I'm kind of trying to think through it through that way. I had a similar question along that, yeah. and uh, thank you for that response. And I think I understand how you might answer, because I was just going to ask, okay, let's say that you see Trudeau and Trump have a relation, you know, have a conversation, 
And how do you see Jesus coming on the clouds in this situation? And perhaps uh, your answer would be, you know, not necessarily looking for, oh, is this the Antichrist? Is this the, is this Babylon? Is this Iraq? You know, mm-hmm. and start trying to draw a mind map right. of God's future uh, plans. But to say, okay, instead of looking at the news where I could despair, I look into the midst and I see people uh, forgiving each other. I see, I see people helping those who are in need. Mm-hmm. And I see the incoming kingdom, not as a roaring lion, but as a slain lamb in, the, in, in my midst. Uh, and so, so that's how I guess, I mean, from what you just said, Liz, how you might respond to that. I think so. I think if you, if you consider that when you read through the gospel story, the, the son of God is born obscurely in a feeding trough in a small backwater town outside of the capital. You know, that's, that's where God likes to do his stuff in the dark corners that no one expects the kingdom is breaking in. So if that's the way he likes to work, I, have, I don't think we're given any evidence that that's changed. Revelation sure, certainly isn't saying that it's changed. Like it's going to look, it's going to be invisible to, to the naked. It's going to be invisible to most people unless you're really watching and paying attention and you know the story, you know what to look for and say, ah, this is where God's kingdom is breaking in. Yeah? Right? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's think of that, that scene in, in when Elijah goes to the, the mountain and it's the earthquake and the fire and the the wind. And where's where's the presence of the Lord? Here's the little gentle voice. It's another it's another double chiasm thing where the next thing so he does that twice and then God tells him go back and anoint this person king this person king and this person prophet in your place that's the earthquake that's the wind that's the fire those are the big fame those are the big title positions that everyone's looking what's God doing but I've reserved 7,000 people who revere my name that nobody you don't know about that's that's where my presence is at. This is very, I think it's very similar for us, like mm-hmm. teaching us how do we see what's going on? Where is the kingdom breaking in? Probably not at the, the G8 summit or, or, or all these places. I'm not, I'm not anti, what's the G15? Uh, whatever it is now. I'm, I'm behind. So you see how I don't want to keep up. Um, uh, it's, it's, I think it's in these little communities, these little spaces of reconciling, doing the reconciling work of, of Reconcile one another to each other and to Christ, mm-hmm. to God in Christ. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful because I think it just that the way you said about being a non-anxious presence, you know, mm-hmm. like it just it helps us, I think, to let go of that control of being like I have to figure this out and how all the pieces are fitting together. Right. Or my Christian community has to figure this out, or I'm going to mm-hmm. read this book that has decoded all the numbers of Revelation, <laughs> and yeah. you know. But to say like, and that that that's also also depending on God to reveal things at the right yeah. time to us, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I tell my. Sorry. Oh, my on what a non-anxious, what to be a non-anxious presence is. Um. I'm good at defining describing things. A non-anxious presence. What do other people think of when they think of non-anxious presence? Paul in the prison. 
Paul in the prison. Secret of contentment. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I can imagine being, I, I, I'll take my own example. Um, of a wife and three kids. We're trying to live in Victoria. It's very difficult financially with one income. So I can imagine a spectrum where of anxiety, you know, that we've experienced different levels and learning to live together and be a non-anxious presence for one another as we, as we seek to trust and with God with our future and what's going to happen and how long can we stay. And if we leave, that's okay. You know, putting that, okay. God is well aware of our situation and it's not going to catch him by surprise. So just kind of learning to, to reframe things for ourselves. If my wife is constantly anxious about our living situation, that very much affects me. Mm. Right. And so, so my wife is largely learned for my sake to be a non anxious, a less anxious presence. Um, and, and I as well in, in other areas for her. That's the example that popped into my mind. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, oh, that's fine. No, because that the Lord trusts and mm-hmm. my friend here, Abigail. Every time I worry about, let's say, oh, the money or something, so well, and she always say the the answer that make me so mad and insecure the most is like, well, the Lord will take care of it. The Lord will probably like that's, that's really not what I want to hear. So, how can you? And that's and it seems to make her feel so secure. I'm like, wow. I wish I could just, I mean, how do you get that belief? I mean, I know that it's like, how can, because I really hope the Lord's going to enter, because when you talk about Trump and Trudeau and stuff, I'm like, I hope the Lord knows what's going on and he's going to be there to take care of me. Yeah. You know, so because, and it's the same for my life. So I get insecure and I know it. I like, yeah. feel what you're saying. Like if, yeah. And I'm tired of sometimes being so insecure and I know that I'm insecure. I'm like, the person will see it, will feel it. Oh, I got to, how can, you know, it seems that, the Lord, I'm resisting mm. the Lord to, I said, yeah. no, <laughs> yeah. just, I don't know, do something before to prove me or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, do you get that faith? Do you go, oh, the Lord will provide or something? Or I just, uh, I, I desire to, to have, yeah, to, yeah, to be more confident in that area. I mm-hmm. think, I, I mean, I identify with what you're saying. I, I, those, like, I recognize, it's a discipline to recognize your insecurities and then to be intentional about bringing, for me, about bringing those before the yeah. Lord and saying, I know you know this already, but, <laughs> right? I'm just going to say it out loud for both of our benefits, <laughs> or however, however you pray. This is a little window into my prayer life. Um, uh, I know you're well aware of this, but, uh, but it is, I want to offer that to you, and I'm going to yeah. trust you with it. And it's not, it's not health and wealth. It's not like, oh, everything's going to be fine, because people end up on Patmos. Right? Yeah. There's no guarantee. I won't end up on Patmos or whatever the modern equivalent. I don't know. Right? But but the guarantee... What's that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the promise isn't that it's all going to work out that way. The promise is um, that God is with us, that promises to be with us and sustain us even even when we are on Patmos, even when we are in prison, even when we are in those spaces and will promises to be enough for us. Right? I tell my I tell my small group getting back to the the Bethlehem the God works behind the scenes stuff. I tell my small group leaders or my neighborhood table or, or table leaders and they're meeting their small groups is like, oh, on that that night or that day when you know you only have like five people show up or two people show up, 
oh, that's when it gets exciting because God, that's where God likes to do the, you know, and then, oh, this is just three people. What should we cancel? This isn't that significant. Like, okay, that's where you got to pay attention. That's where you got to watch, right? That's where God likes to do stuff. Oh, I like yeah. that. Liz. Yeah, I guess just, this is, yeah, with the non-anxious thing, like, I think, um, yeah, it's great to have that whole biblical scope of history and, and the book of Revelation. Um, for me, just realizing, like, when I see all of these world things mm. going on that I'm so anxious about in, in our own culture, I can, we can be so reactive as Christians, I think, yeah, sometimes. Right. Well, even not as Christians. But just like, oh no, I have to do something. I have to act right now. Mm-hmm. Everything's falling apart, and um, and and think that like this is the only time that things have ever been falling apart right. too. You know, so I can yeah. appreciate that talk about the spirals. But just mm-hmm. to know that Jesus is the one who holds this all and sees mm-hmm. the beginning is the beginning and mm-hmm. the end. Um, that really helps me to not be anxious about it. To yeah. not be like the pressure is not on me. Yeah. You know, to figure it all out and to solve the problem and and we we can react uh, respond rather than reacting I guess right. because we don't have we don't have that right. weight to do that so and it also I really feel like puts my own life in perspective that you know even if there are like patmoses in my own life mm-hmm. um, that this story is not like a story primarily about me and sometimes I want it to be a often yeah. I want it to be a story about me yeah. but it's actually very in the end very relieving to say like. Very I don't have to get it right. I don't have to get everything I want because oh, there's yeah. a larger story and there's a story after the story that I'm in right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that's part of what helps me to not be anxious is just being mm-hmm. like there's a way bigger picture than what I can see right now and I can trust it. I think that's a great illustration of a spiritual discipline of, of, that, of that recognition, that habit of, oh yeah, Lord, I'm not in charge. I don't have to hold all the cosmos together. That's, you hold all things together, mm-hmm. right? And I can I can live into that. I can follow you into seven that. Seven stars. Yeah, the seven stars. That's, that's good. That's good. Image. I was just wondering if you could unpack some of the imagery a little more in mm-hmm. terms of like how you got to those themes with the different parts of his. Like the character. the grace, truth, and power themes. Yeah, like why does white hair mean grace? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just I was connecting it to um, the language is white like wool like snow and it mm-hmm. and there's it's all. It's not a direct quote, but it's, it seems like an allusion to Isaiah 1. Our, your sins were like scarlet, but I will make them white as snow. Mm-hmm. And so, allusion to that, of the image of purity um, and, and being made clean. I think paired especially with the, the connection there of face like the sun and the sun being a symbol of light and blessing and goodness, like especially in maybe more primarily agrarian society, you're not going to get very far, right, without the sun. Even today, we won't get very far without the sun, um, so I'm told. Um, so I think I think that speaks to... Uh, Johnson is really good. He spends a lot of time on this particular chiasm. He's really excited about it. Mm-hmm. And I'd recommend Discipleship on the Edge if you can get your hands on it. Um, but he goes into more depth with, with each of these things and kind of the, the themes that they're connected to. Mm-hmm. Is that the primarily one, or was it these as well? So feet of bronze, referring back to Daniel, and the, the juxtaposition there was very clear about the, the power and the robustness of God's kingdom that shatters the, the brittle kingdoms of the, of the Greek and Roman Persian. Maybe in my chapters in Daniel, I know you've done Daniel recently, the two kingdoms there. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
the the uh, with the seven stars we've been talking about holding the fates and the power, like the authority there. Mm-hmm. Um, flame of fire. Um, the the piercing gaze of Christ that sees into us, but fire as uh, is commonly understood as a purifying agent in the ancient world, mm-hmm. and and also ours, um, and the sword of the double-edged sword. Think of, I mean, this isn't the Old Testament, but um, the, uh, is it Hebrews? The, the, the sword that pierces? Yeah, Hebrews. Yeah, between the, can't, I can never do quotes from scripture. The <laughs> pierces between spirit and soul, marrow, all that's like, like that it, it does its it does its its surgical work almost the image of surgery inside of us so these two are very much paired in that way and sent these have to do with the sword of the spirit that's uh, truth um, and I just love that that idea of of the the kind of ruler I think the leader we all long for whether it's president prime minister king whatever it is is the one who marries these these things perfectly the grace the the power that's used the perfect marriage of grace and truth. So that is what we all want for. And then what about many waters? Like, what does that evoke? Uh, many waters, I think it just speaks to the... I don't know if... I can't remember if, if there was an allusion there to anything Old Testament or not, but I think just the, the, the deafening sound, like the voice of many... Like, mm-hmm. the idea of waters upon waters, maybe like a deep waterfall, just sort of drowning out the all all the noise or all the sounds of you know i don't know you think of if you're stranded on patmos for sticking up for jesus you can maybe start to think you can maybe start to have some invasive thoughts of things that are like would you do the right thing you know i mean i i think um yeah i think i'll just leave it there that that idea that that when we can put ourselves into the presence of of hearing the voice of Jesus clearly, that that, that um, drowns transforms, that drowns out. Yeah. Mm. And all of these point to uh, they're all Old Testament allusions mm. to God's character in the Old Testament. Yeah. yeah. And so, and it speaks of these kind of characteristics, mm. and at the center is His voice. Mm. Yeah, and it says that his voice is like many rushing waters in the Old Testament as well. Yeah. So, so it's not just John, you know, creating a new metaphor, mm-hmm. but uh, it's like a it's like a whirlpool of Old Testament images and metaphors coming, and and uh, swirling about and coming upon this one person, the um, in the Revelation of Jesus. That's mm-hmm. good. question about the sword more specifically um, because it calls it a double-edged sword mm-hmm. I um, and Paul also when he talks about this the armor um, in Ephesians yeah. mentions the uh, he calls it a sword I don't know if he mentions the double and just their significance in that is that a common just a common term for a sword or is Fact, yeah, I, I'm sure there is significance, and I can't. And I think 
I think Johnson does get to it, but I can't remember. I didn't have it in my notes, and I can't remember what the specifics were. Do you know, Clark? Can't remember. Other than it's really, really sharp. <laughs> it's also pounded. Like, it takes a lot more pounding. Like, there's a special mm. process to make that double-edged sword where it's flat and then, then folded and then flat and then, mm-hmm. then folded. And so it, it's kind of talking about the fire in the sense of, like, the purifying pressure of yeah. God in order to get to that strong, sharp point. I don't know. That's pretty good. I like that. Yeah. Where are you going with that? But that sword is always, you know, a reference to something figurative. It's not saying that we should arm ourselves and go no, out on crusades, no, no. but that we fight not against flesh and blood. No, it's quite obvious that coming out of his mouth that is his word. Right. That makes me think of, uh, I think in Gospels, John, he's the washing the disciples' feet, and, and like, oh, well, Peter's, you know, typical Peter, Oh, this is important. Once you wash my whole body, and then Jesus says, "You're you're already made." I think it's that in John, "You're already made clean by the words I have spoken to you." It's a bit up. It's a bit. Oh, it's a strange thing to say, but this might speak to it with this image of of the uh, the purifying aspect of of God's words that it actually transforms us. That it actually it actually does that internal work that, to transform desires or order desires, maybe purify desires. When we say something's a double-edged sword, we, I mean, that's a, probably a modern metaphor that's yeah. not related, but we usually mean like... Double-edged, you mean like, yeah. You cut yourself with it, sort yeah. of. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which mm-hmm. I think sometimes we do when we try to use the scripture, or we, right. we should be like, when we try to apply it to someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe we should be able to apply it to ourselves as well, but I don't think that's what it's, I think that's more yeah. of a modern mm-hmm. application of the term double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. English, English metaphor. I have a question on, like, I've always been horribly vexed by when one of my good friends who used to be a pastor were discussing an idea, mm-hmm. and he says, like, something along the lines of, like, well, God's taking care of that, what's in God's hands, mm-hmm. and God meant that to happen. And for me, who's, like, more on the fence, theologically speaking, mm-hmm. um, I, I always wonder, like, God has his hand on all moving parts, um, but I always feel like when that's said, it's like, your free will is somehow kind of abdicated, hmm. um, and I always think about this in terms of my friends who are not, who are just like atheists or secularists or whatever they are, um, like they would respond very hostilely to that phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering whether like in Revelations I haven't read Revelations um, I've just heard bits and pieces but it seems to draw a pretty stark contrast between those that followed and those that didn't mm-hmm. um, yeah and I just wanted to get this is a rambling question but I wanted to get your thoughts on when that phrase is kind of put because it's a, it's a bit of a throwaway phrase that I've heard a lot of people use right like it's in yeah. God's hands or God will use that yeah um like, to what purpose in that person's life, or to what purpose for God's plan? Uh, right. Do you get where I'm kind of? I think so, but there's a couple of different things there. I think one is the thing that oh, all things happen for a reason, mm-hmm. um, and uh, or um, 
it must be God's will if it happened, which I don't, I don't, isn't anything, there's nothing in, in what we're looking at in Revelation mm -hmm. that's suggesting that, um, because it seems quite clear that things happen that are not according to God's will mm -hmm. or, or God's plan. The idea that God would use bad things for the good, that's a common, that's, mm -hmm. That's something that's stated that, that God likes to redeem. He likes to take things that were used for evil or that had evil intent and then use the outcomes and turn it around and that, and that sort of thing. So the, the Bible seems full of that kind of mm -hmm. idea and imagery. Is it, those are the kind of the two. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. yeah um, I think the idea that kingdoms are in tension and collision speaks right here in, in Revelation 1 and throughout the rest of Revelation, uh, that flips this stuff, stuff um, speaks to the fact that the things that are, a lot of things are at odds, actually, with God's mm. plan and desires. And that's, that's the promise. So um, if there's anything that's inevitable, according to the scriptures, is that God, because he is the perfect mix of these things, is going, Jesus is going to, is going to conquer. It will be his kingdom in the end for good and for peace and for justice that thing is sure kind of the the chronos time between now and then is full of all sorts of how and questions and 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 all that those slipsis moments right mm -hmm. so yeah yeah i would say that the bottom line is that uh, a broken foot is not god's will mm -hmm. uh, but god can certainly use mm -hmm. The, the mm. time you get while healing for good. Mm -hmm. Mm. But mm. the broken foot isn't God's will. Mm. In theology, there's a division between there's two types of wills by God. One's decreative and one's general. And they both occur simultaneously. Uh, I believe I got that right. And his decreative will is his, his purposes, his accomplishment for time. He knows when things will end. And his purposes have not been abdicated, overthrown. His his, um, his seat upon the throne is not shaken. Right, yeah. um, but his general will is what he allows, mm. um, what he allows within, within that. That you know, We make choices, this university, that university, and we don't have to like, throw out the fleece to find out what God's will is, but that he gives us a general mm. uh, permission to live within it, and, and we just need to abide by his character. Yeah. That's what his general will is. Anyway, it's 9 o'clock. We usually call it quits at this, so I just want to formalize and say thank you. I'm sure people can chat with you, but just thank yeah. you so much. Great. Thanks, everybody. This is fun. So chat with Andy if you like.